0: History is sadly full of examples of cognitive biases undermining human progress and happiness. When my wife and I were in London recently, we saw Mark Rylance in his new play, Dr. Semmelweis. This is the true, albeit somewhat dramatized story, of a Hungarian obstetrician who was working in Vienna, and he discovered in 1847 that if doctors washed their hands between seeing patients, the rate of childbed fever, which is a horrible scourge, Of hospitals at at that time, that the rate of that would plunge. It was killing lots of people, in a lot of hospitals, but he figured out how to prevent it. So he tried to get other doctors and hospitals to adopt his practice, which was simply washing his hands. Essentially, none did for almost forty years. After Semmelweis himself had been committed to an asylum, where he died. Now, this is despite the fact that he had run multiple controlled experiments in the hospital in Vienna, and after he was dismissed from there in his own clinic in Budapest, where he consistently demonstrated Europe's lowest maternal mortality rate. Semmelweis's observations conflicted with the established scientific and medical opinions of the time and of his superiors, and his ideas were rejected by the medical community. Now, of course, they were true. There was clear evidence that his intervention, which is washing his hands, worked, but the medical community could not square the evidence with their theory of how diseases occurred, and their theory won. Now, the Wikipedia article on Semmelweis says, the rejection of Semmelweis's empirical observations is often traced to belief perseverance, the psychological tendency of clinging to discredited beliefs. Also, some historians of science argue that resistance to path-breaking contributions of obscure scientists is common and constitutes the single most formidable block to scientific advances. So belief perseverance and authority bias, the tendency to attribute greater accuracy to the opinion of an authority figure unrelated to its content and be more influenced by that opinion are only two of hundreds of cognitive biases social scientists and psychologists have discovered. So why did I tell you this story? Because as product managers, decision makers, we need to know about cognitive biases, which we all have, and we need to mitigate our decisions against them. And of course, there's a lot of tools that we use to do that, But the fundamental thing is cognitive biases, if you don't protect yourself against them, they cause you to make bad decisions through lots of different mechanisms. Now, what is a cognitive bias? Well, Wikipedia defines a cognitive bias, there's probably multiple definitions, but this is a reasonable one. A cognitive bias is a systematic pattern of deviation from norm or rationality in judgment. For various reasons, a person's model of how the world works is influenced not just by data, but by mental processes that sometimes lead to inaccuracy and error and may dictate their behavior. Thus, cognitive biases may sometimes lead to perceptual distortion, inaccurate judgment, illogical interpretation, and irrationality, as the Wikipedia article says. So I'll put a link to the Wikipedia article about cognitive biases and to the incredible list of cognitive biases that's also on Wikipedia. Very fun to read, actually. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode 155 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. This podcast is for product managers and product marketers, leaders, anyone who wants to make a difference in the world by creating great products and taking them to market successfully. A big part of that is making good decisions. Now, this episode, I wanted to mention my free semi-weekly product manager meetup. Actually, it's becoming weekly again, uh, which happens every Friday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time, unless there's some, something going on. So we talk about topics like the ones I share in this podcast or in all the other podcasts. The conversation is a lot of fun and full of insights. It's free to join. If you'd like to join, go to the sign-up page at secretsofpm.com slash meetup and get on the notification list. And I'll send you an email whenever we have one scheduled. I'd love to have you join. Again, that's secretsofpm.com slash meetup. Get together with other product managers, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, every Friday morning. So why are cognitive bias is so dangerous for product managers? Well, obviously, because we have to make decisions all the time, making bad decisions is a problem. And so since cognitive biases often make, lead people to make bad decisions, that's bad for us, right? And they also make us bad at other things. They make us bad at research. They make us come to the wrong conclusions based on the data. They make us ignore data that we should pay attention to and pay attention to data that we should ignore. They make us think we're doing things for one reason when we're actually doing them for another reason. And since our job is making good decisions, we have to protect ourselves. You know, our customer data is also full of cognitive biases, as are the ideas and information we got from internal sources. You know, recency bias is very big with sales, for example. You always hear sales talk about, well, if I'd only had this new feature, I could have won that last five deals. And so they're going to focus on the fact that they lost some deals and they feel like if they had this one feature, and so why don't you go build that feature? Recency bias essentially weights more heavily data that is more recent, like that most recent lost sale. But it is a bias because the reality is they might have lost other sales earlier on that had a more important thing that was missing, if indeed it is at all even related to something being missing. It is very easy, and you see it constantly in product and elsewhere, to use what's called motivated reasoning, another cognitive bias. We think we have a great idea, and so we look for data that confirms that our idea is good, and we reject data that indicates our idea is bad. Due to cognitive biases, our judgment is influenced highly by what we want to win. Now, Julia Galef, I'll put a link to the talk where I learned about this, she calls this soldier mindset. Another name that's sort of more official is confirmation bias. And this is a very common one. As I said, we have this good idea, we want to see it win because we think it's such a great idea, even if it might not be a good idea. And so we act like soldiers for that idea. We go and fight for that idea. Now, Galef contrasts soldier mindset to a different mindset. She calls it scout mindset, which is really fundamentally about trying to get an accurate picture of reality, no matter how distasteful or no matter how much it goes against your ideas of what's good and bad. And you actively work to eliminate and overcome biases. And the characteristics of the scout are that you have to be curious, that you have to be willing to be wrong. This is really fundamental. And you have to be grounded. And the definition she used for that is that your self-worth is not tied to your beliefs. In other words, you continue to think good thoughts about yourself, even if you happen to find out that one of your beliefs is wrong. I'm going to talk about a few different things about cognitive biases in this podcast. One is, I think it's interesting to think about how they arise. And so we'll talk a little bit about the origins. And we'll talk about some of the ways that we can use cognitive biases to our advantage. Although, again, you have to be very careful because of the fact that making use of cognitive biases can sometimes be very unethical. And then I'll talk about a few things that you can do to protect yourself against cognitive biases. And I'll finish up with the usual three things you can start doing. So how do cognitive biases arise? Well, some of them are just pure mistakes in the way our brains process information. They're just, our brains aren't good at certain types of data processing, and it makes mistakes. But a lot of them are actually side effects of efficiency algorithms. And there's a great book you probably have heard about, Thinking Fast and Slow, by Daniel Kahneman. He's a Nobel Prize winner who did a bunch of research on how badly we think, basically. And what his research indicated was that there's really kind of two modes of our brain thinking. It's an oversimplification, but basically you can think of two modes. There's the efficient, there's the quick mode and the slow mode. And the quick mode is efficient and the slow mode is accurate. And we have all these decision-making and thinking mechanisms or algorithms in our brains that are focused on being efficient about making a decision quickly. And then we have less efficient algorithms that help us make a decision that is more grounded in fact. And it's the the problem, of course, is that it's very easy for us to automatically do the quick thing, the efficient thing, and it's harder for us to get our brain to do the slower thing, and our brain resists it. Now, there's also cognitive biases that are related to us being social beings. So totally separately from whether they're pure mistakes or they're related to efficiency, they're really related to being social beings. And they include things like the law of reciprocity, which you might have heard of, which is the essentially social rule that says, if somebody gives you something, you feel obligated to give them something in return. Well, that's not necessarily logical or rational, that interchange. But because we're social beings, it makes sense for that rule to exist because it helps create social bonds and social bonds turned out to be valuable. So there are a number of rules related or sort of cognitive biases that are related to the fact that we're social and not simply purely logical. Now, some are also just cuz our brains aren't good at math as I kind of mentioned, they're just mistakes or the, the our brains are bad at math. Our brains are really bad at comparing things. Particularly for example, our brains are very bad at comparing something happening today to something happening three months from now. The value of those two things or essentially the discounted value of time if you remember your MBA course about that. Our brains are very terrible at the discounted value of time. You can look at the discounted value of time or sort of thinking about how much something is worth in the future versus today. You can look at that rationally and the conclusions you come to about the decisions people make is that their decisions, their natural decisions about those situations are not very logical. Another whole set of biases, cognitive biases, are the ones that we really depend on actually for doing persuasion. So a lot of persuasion techniques are based on cognitive biases. For example, one of the things that people tell you if you want to be persuasive is you need to be confident. Well, essentially, people consider confidence to be a mark of trustworthiness. And so this is why I've actually in this podcast suggest that you often act more confident than you feel, for example, when you're presenting an idea and you're not totally sure that the idea is great, but you should be presenting it confidently because people will be more likely to go along with it. Now, we all know rationally that confidence and trustworthiness actually have nothing to do with one another. Con men certainly know this. Con in that phrase is actually short for confidence. The whole idea of a con is to gain the trust of a mark by being confident and using other persuasion techniques, and it works partly because of our susceptible to the confidence equals trustworthiness, cognitive bias. But, of course, if we want to do persuasion, we should think about possibly acting more confident than we really are, or certainly acting confident. Another persuasion technique that depends on a cognitive bias is reciprocity. I talked about that one already. Con men use that as well. If I give you something, then you feel obligated to give me something back in a reciprocal manner, And this may make sense from a social standpoint, but it doesn't really make sense from a rationality standpoint. And yet it's an incredibly strong influence on people's behavior. The way that it becomes a problem is if I give you something that's not worth much, I persuade you because of their reciprocity principle to give me something that's worth a lot, then it's very easy for me to con you in that situation. In fact, if you read Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, which is all about the fundamental tools of persuasion, they are essentially all ways to take advantage of cognitive biases. Things like social proof, authority, scarcity, commitment and consistency, which is sort of related to reciprocity. We have to be very careful then when we're doing influence and doing persuasion to not go overboard. To, because the, the cognitive biases themselves give us a lot of power over our audience, over our customers, or prospects, whoever we might be trying to persuade. And so we need to make sure that we don't do unethical things with that power. So what cognitive biases do we really need to watch out for? And I'll just give you a list of some of the most interesting and, and I think sort of common cognitive biases that, that affect us on a day-to-day basis. And as I say, there's a big long list on Wikipedia. One of the ones that I talk about a lot or that I try to look out for myself is what's called the fundamental attribution error. And this is a cognitive bias where you know, if you, if you do something that's kind of boneheaded or dumb yourself, you're going to give yourself an, an excuse for that. You're going to say, well, that, in that situation, I, I, just, I didn't quite know what I was doing in that situation. I kind of made a mistake. But that's not really me. I'm not really like that. But if you see somebody else separate from you making that same mistake, you might say, oh, that person is terrible. That person is a bad person. Instead of thinking about what can situ- what the situation might have driven that person to do or the- how the situation might have impacted what that person did as opposed to their own, uh, them being a bad person. This is the fundamental attribution error. We attribute our own mistakes to the situation. We attribute other people's mistakes to them being bad people. It actually also frees up your brain a lot. When somebody does something that you don't like or you don't approve of, thinking about how that person must have a bad situation causing that to happen instead of thinking that's a bad person. If you think of are having a bad situation, you can be sympathetic to that person or empathetic to that person. You might have had a similar bad situation. Another one really important to know about is the blind spot bias. And what do you think the blind spot bias is? Well, it's the one that says you can't see your own biases. It's very important to recognize that even though you can't see your biases, you have them. And so you better be doing something about them, and you better know which ones there are and what the techniques are for mitigating them, because you cannot see your own biases. That's one of the problems with cognitive biases, is you can't see them in yourself. This is because of the blind spot bias. We're essentially blind to our own biases. I mentioned uh, the recency bias, which makes more recent examples of something more salient than examples of something, uh, examples of a thing that happened further in the past. There's also the familiarity bias. This is where things that happen more often are more likely to come to mind than things that happen less often, but that might be equally interesting in a particular decision-making situation. The curse of knowledge is a really big one. really impacts product managers a lot. We know everything about our product, and it's very easy for us. And actually, you also see this in uh, a lot of times in sales and sales engineering as well when they're demoing the product. We all have a lot of knowledge about our product. And when we're talking, for example, to a prospect and we don't remember that they don't know anything, and not only do they not know anything, but often they don't care that much about the product, that we can't just assume that they know things and that they they can see what we're doing in a, like in a demo. And so the curse of knowledge is really important to be aware of, first of all, and to remember that when you're talking to somebody about your product, for example, as I said, when you're demoing you want to make sure that you are being empathetic to where they are, which is they don't know much about the product. And they often probably don't want to know much about the product. They want to know about the product and its impact on their problem. They don't want to know about the details of the product except insofar as they address the problem that the prospect has. So the curse of knowledge is a good one. There's also the Dunning-Kruger effect. This is probably pretty well known. This is a situation where People who are non-experts think that they are ca- their capabilities in a domain are much stronger than they really are, whereas people that are experts often think of their capabilities as being much weaker than they really are. It's sort of like the more you know, the more you know you don't know, and the less you know, the less you know you don't know, so to speak, and it it can have a really interesting impact. You know, you always hear people say, well, I, I'm I'm asking you for this for this new feature, it t- should only take you a week to code this new feature because they don't actually know all the things that go into coding a new feature and getting it to market and making it production ready and things like that. That might take a month or it might take two months even for a simple feature, depending on your software and all those kinds of things, a lot of situations. Whereas you know, you might talk to a developer about that and they might say, well, that's going to take two months to do, you know, and I can think of all these different things that can go wrong and actually one of the ways you address that with a developer is you start to simplify the problem for them and then they can often bring it in. So the the salesperson who's asking for the feature thinks, oh, this is so simple it should only take minutes, whereas the developer might think, oh, this could be really complicated and difficult. And so neither of those is necessarily the right rational answer to the situation. And then there's confirmation bias, which is the one I talked about earlier, where you look for evidence for your point or your point of view, and you discount evidence against your point of view. It's a very strong human bias, and you have to be really careful about it, basically. But there's things you can do. So how can we protect ourselves against cognitive biases? Let's talk about three things you can start doing. The first thing is recognize that you have the blind spot bias, meaning you cannot see your own biases. They exist. They're operating on you at all, at all times, and they're operating on your decision-making. And so you need to expect that, oh, this is happening, so I need to do something. One of the easiest things is to always assume that you're wrong, or that you might be wrong. And then look for evidence that confirms that you're wrong. So don't look for evidence necessarily that confirms your position. Look for evidence that disproves your position. Number two is really to use the scientific method. The whole purpose of the scientific method is to overcome cognitive biases. So you consider your idea a hypothesis, and then you set out to disprove it. And that's what really the scientific method is about. It's not about proving something is true. It's about trying to disprove it, and if you can't disprove it, then you can tentatively say it's true. You're looking for evidence that your hypothesis is wrong, and you treat evidence that your hypothesis is right with suspicion. So this is the way the scientific method works. And it really is kind of designed, although not specifically designed, but it accidentally was designed to overcome cognitive biases. The third thing to do is actively use techniques that help you overcome bias. For example, don't use closed-ended or leading questions when you're doing customer interviews. Those lead to answers that are heavily subject to bias, both on the part of the person you're talking to and on by being biased by you. Instead, Use non leading open ended questions. Don't ask people if they'd be willing to buy something. Give them the opportunity to buy it and see if they do. In other words, don't try to set them up or don't try to make them respond with a reciprocity bias answer. This person's going out of their way to talk to me about their new product and get to get my ideas. I'm very grateful about that. So if they ask me if I'd like to buy it, of course I'm going to say yes. In this episode, I've just had the barest touch on the very large subject of cognitive biases. I hope it's been somewhat useful. The show notes at secretsofpm.com slash 155 have a lot of links to useful articles and books and YouTube videos and other resources related to cognitive biases. There's a ton of stuff about it. This could go on for hours and days, months. There's a ton of information on the internet and, as I say, really interesting and entertaining articles about cognitive biases everywhere. In particular, that list of cognitive biases on Wikipedia is very eye-opening. And I'll also give a link to some other books that talk about cognitive biases. Really great one called The Invisible Gorilla. Fantastic book about cognitive biases that I will put a link to in the show notes. I hope you found this interesting. Let me know if you there's any cognitive biases that you particularly think are interesting or that you'd like me to learn more about or talk about. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. I'm Nels Davis on both platforms. You can... Go to the show page and leave me a comment. Love to have that. Or you can just drop me an email, nils at nilsdavis.com. Love to hear your feedback. Until next time, this is Nils Davis. Bye-bye.